listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. One of the things that has been central to looking at what formation is, is that when it comes to the things that form us, shape us as people, shape our values, our beliefs, our behaviour, and why we do what we do, it's not our successes. And it's not our good times. The things that form us the most are our trials and the ordinary events. And voila, here we are again in a worldwide trial. And here in Melbourne particularly, um, out of all the places in Australia, further lockdowns and further challenge. But I really want to encourage each one of us is that this is a crucible that is allowed by God for a reason. And there is something specific he's doing in his church at this time that he insists happens. And so I feel really honoured to just lift the lid to the best of my ability to show us what some of that is. Um, But we're looking at the book of Revelation. Mark has set us up for three weeks highly recommend you see those if you haven't already and revelation is an apt book for this time revelation really at its essence shows us or it tells us what is happening or gives us a perspective of what is happening in light of the future and our future is good if i was to summarize revelation revelation tells us that jesus will have the final word And that gives us tremendous courage and perspective for what we're facing, whatever our trials and challenges are personally and corporately. But the other thing Revelation does is that it unpacks the unseen realities in light of the present. That as we walk through this, there are things that we see and we experience, but behind this, a little bit like dark matter, there is more going on behind the scene that is more real than what it is we see. And this is the gift that Revelation is to us. Last week, Mark unpacked the seven lampstands and the seven stars and a Jesus who is in the midst of those places. The seven stars being the seven angels or the messengers to each of the churches, the seven lampstands being the churches themselves. And it's this exquisite picture of this unseen reality. Evelyn Close, part of our community, was so inspired by this message, she put together the following um, piece of art. And when I saw this, I was really gripped by it. We're not talking about punsy little Ikea lamps outside your house. We're talking about brilliant light penetrating the darkness, that the truth to our belief and the truth to who the true church is, that Jesus is raising up and breathing into and resurrecting at this moment, is that we don't stand peripheral to the world. The world stands peripheral to the church. And so these letters that we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks are so central to the message that Jesus Christ has for us in this particular moment. And so from here, we're going to look at some of these letters. And as we unpack them, what we're seeing here is not letters written by John, who is the conduit for a lot of revelation, and they're not letters written by Paul. These are letters written by Jesus Christ himself. So this is what uh, Jesus is saying to his church. And the first letter is to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is also the letter that was written to the Ephesians, so it's, it's good to cross, um, cross-reference both. 
But Ephesus, the actual city now in um, modern-day Turkey, was an incredibly influential centre. It was the fourth biggest city in the Roman Empire. It was a very influential city. It was cosmopolitan. It was pluralistic. It was a centre of politics and philosophy. It had many gods, as was true to the era of that time. But I would put it akin to what was a New York York, or a Singapore or a Melbourne. Um, And many people would travel there from all around the world. They would come there particularly to worship the goddess Artemis or called uh, Diana and Diana was the god of fertility and sex and lust. Um, What we have here is this picture of her, she's got quite an interesting chest Um, and the activities in which the city would orientate themselves around was dictated by the narrative of the worship of this god and this was incredibly challenging to the church at that time. Sex, abundance, fertility, obvious and natural part and temptation of any era But it was the key narrative that drove people at that time. Her temple was the seventh wonder of the ancient world. But more than that, we also had the emperor, um, what was his name? Quick, Domitian. Sorry, I get confused between him and Diocletian. The emperor Domitian. And he was even more confronting to the church at that time. And so you had these twin pressures that the church was living at that time. You had the goddess of sex and fertility on one side and all of this social and cultural behaviour happening around her. And on the other side, you had a human being claiming to be God and saviour and demanding worship on the other. Domitian next to Nero was the biggest competitor or the biggest persecutor of Christians at that time. As we saw that, I kind of feel like they're in a Zoom meeting and I reckon they should do Alpha and realise they're not the real they're not the real God. But what we have here, and my whole point here, is that the church in Ephesus thrived as it was competing between not just multiple gods, but particularly Diana, Artemis, and particularly Domitian and the voice of Caesars and the Roman Empire of the day. And so it's within that backdrop that Jesus writes this letter, and we're looking at Revelations 2, 1 to 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance, and I know that you cannot tolerate the practices of the Nicolaitans, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The first thing I really want to highlight here is this word knows. We don't have a Jesus who is a static, distant observer. We have a Jesus, as we explored a couple of weeks ago, who is in the midst of his church. And by pure definition, the church is not a volunteer organisation. It is definitely not a social gathering. It is defined by the presence of this living Christ at work, present amidst the people. And so when he says, I know, what we're encountering is a truth telling by a true witness who has seen everything and is able to testify to what he has observed and to what he holds true, what he holds true. And what he details here is four things that he commends the Ephesian church for doing, remember, in the backdrop of incredible cultural pleasure, uh, pressure and pluralism vying for their attention. He says, firstly, I know your deeds, that this is a church that had intentional and conscious good works 
that shaped their orientation. This is a church that was not passive. This is a church that was active. And if those good deeds weren't enough, he then re-says it by saying, I know your hard work. Hard work in the original Greek here means strenuous and exhausting labour. These are people that got their hands dirty. These are people that went to work at great cost and against relentless opposition. And then he says, your perseverance. I know your perseverance. Some of you are persevering at the moment. And perseverance takes perseverance, as Sue Ellison says. What he's referring to here is that there's this inner attitude. There's this drive and this compulsion of long-suffering and patient endurance, no matter what comes against them. And day after day, they would get up. And day after day, they would do their good works. And they would persist. They would keep doing it against a lot of cultural pressure. But then fourthly, he talks about their discernment, that they had this remarkable ability to discern between what was false and what was true in a culture where there were many gods, in a culture where there were competing narratives and in a culture where the Christian narrative was also up for grabs and being misrepresented, they had the ability to discern. And so what we have in this church is a hardworking, diligent church that has faced relentless opposition and not grown weary. This is the poster child church. This is the church that would be tweeted about, books would be written, models would be written. We'd all want to organise a trip to Ephesus to learn how do, we, how do they do governance and how do they do membership and how do they do small groups? How do they do it at Ephesus? They were highly successful and, as I said, they were the most influential of the seven churches. But Jesus, the true witness, who has been amongst them and walking in their midst, then says this to them in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. For all their twitterable success and for all their hard work, they had missed the point. Some translations define this word left as lost um, or abandoned or forsaken. That something that once came first and something that is meant to come first has been dropped away and, and other things have taken over. And what is happening here to the Ephesian church is that they have been deceived by an age-old lie that still runs rampant on the earth. And it is an age-old lie that begins at the beginning of our story in Genesis 3. And Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 11. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That we can laugh at Adam and Eve and their story and go, oh, if only they trusted God, and, oh, if only they listened to what he said. But what if we too have the human propensity to be just as easily deceived. The Ephesian church, for all its success and its ability to stand against all odds in a crucible, fell for that lie. And this is a lie that God is going after at this time, in fact, that he insists it be dealt with. And I'm going to posit that what's going on in Melbourne and particular areas around the world, there'll be different letters to different churches as there is in Revelation. But for us here in Melbourne at the moment, where this is really hitting, there is something specific he's wanting to go after because of what is to come next. And he's going after this lie. 
And this is a lie that says that it's up to you. This is a lie that says you are what you do. This is a lie that says that you're not enough. This is a lie that says you have to prove your worth. This is a lie that plagues you when activity, work, performance, achievement cease. And in the world's standards, it is the lie that says you are what you do. Belief in this lie meant that the Ephesian church had missed the point. And my warning to us is that it's possible we have missed the point too. And in his grace, amongst all the things that are influencing the moment, at the moment, in his grace, he's allowing a crucible to go after that lie that he couldn't otherwise. Partly, I think, as I was preparing this message, what I realised that we're getting to at this point is this wrestle between doing and being. And it's a wrestle I've had a number of conversations with, uh, particularly for people in the formation cohort, but outside of that too. And so I'm like, okay, this is a theme. That tension between doing that potential, that, and the tension between being. Because we all know that doing is a good thing. And thank God for doing. Thank God that right now people are researching a vaccine. Thank God that we have leaders and politicians that are problem solving for us. Thank God that there are people making sanitizer. Thank God that we have parents scurrying about and working busily to look after their household. And we feel for you parents now teaching their children once again and becoming the conduit of teachers. Doing is good. When God created the earth, he gave us this six day to one day ratio, six days, go about your work, do it, work, produce, be stewards on the land, create, make abundance, create order and one day of rest. So we're living in a six to one ratio. But what he's saying here when it comes to being is that that work is never meant to replace the number one thing that needs to come first. But you and I have been formed in a world that insists that we have believed that our being comes out of our doing. And in ways that you consciously know about and in ways that you may not know about but are starting to stir because of where we're at and what we're going through, your sense of being loved, significance, worth and your identity feels like and has been shaped by it'll come by what I do, what I achieve, what I perform and my productivity. And in the subconscious places, not the intentional places, if only I do this, I'll be okay. If only I spend more time with God in this season, then I'm going to be worthy. If only I'm able to help my neighbours more, then I'll be okay and I've stewarded this time. If only I could get work and have work and be productive, then I will have significance. And no one intends this to be the case. This is the air we breathe. Earl Palmer actually calls this the Ephesus syndrome. And as he unpacks this, looking at how none of us intentionally fall into this lie, he says that the first love, that being that you are known, that you are loved, that you are cared for because you exist, is replaced while no one is aware of it. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and work that will never nourish the human soul. So you and I have been plagued with this tension of restlessness for peace and a desire to be accepted and fully known, thinking that we're going to get it in what we do and how we perform. 
although not admitting it, but being orientated by it. And God is going, no, it's not how it's going to be. Ruth Haley Barton says that before calling has anything to do with doing, it has everything to do with being that essence of yourself that God knew before the foundations of the earth, that God called into being and that God alone truly knows. It is the call to be who we are and at the same time to become more than we can ever envision. What she is saying here is that before the foundations of the world, you were chosen, you were beloved, you were lavished on. We explored this in Ephesians. That is the truth. And that truth was exchanged for a lie in the garden. And that is the lie that the Lord has been trying to exchange ever since. And unfortunately, because we're still in this era, in a world where the kingdom reigns and we have a God who has ascended and who reigns, this world, Jesus says three times, is actually under the supreme influence of the devil himself. And his chief strategy is lies. And his number one lie is that you're not loved, that you're not okay, that you're not accepted. And somehow this had crept itself into the Ephesian church. And so for all their good works, which are good on paper, they weren't coming out of a place of security and foundation. They were coming out of a place of lying and wounds, duty and obligation, which you only have to go through the Old Testament into the New to realise that's actually the thing that God hates. He doesn't want your works. He wants your love. He doesn't want your duty. He wants your companionship. And so we might go, yep, 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 heard it all before because this is Christianity 101. But I want to ask you, how has it really been going for you at this time when your competencies have been challenged, when you're not able to control what happens and how it happens? What has your primary response been and how has it made you feel? Because therein lies the nucleus of the part of the soul that our loving saviour wants to administer his vaccine of love and worth in a way only he can and I can't tell you about. Because outside of Christ, it's our genetics, our natural dispositions, our personality and our shaping experiences that are united with the lie that we are in control. And unless he intersects, that lie reigns true. And so I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Could part of what he's wanting to do in his church right now, around the world, particularly in our area of Melbourne, he insists of going after the lies and how they're individually and personally at work in your life. Ruth Haley Barton goes on to say, but this, recognising our being is not as easy as it sounds. By the time we even know that there is such a thing as a true, authentic self, the false self has already taken over to the extent that it is hard to tell what is false and what is true. And over time, a great gulf has developed between who we really are and the designs and plans that the ego has for us. It can be very complicated. It can be a very complicated matter to untangle all the threads. We can't untangle them. It's too confusing. It's why we live in the tension of doing and being and not resting well and not working well because we just can't do either on our own. But this is the grace of God currently undoing those threads for us, rewriting a story, rewriting a tapestry and currently replacing the foundation with himself. 
because the world doesn't need more good works and the world doesn't need more platform and the world doesn't need more ambition, talent or creativity. What the world desperately needs is the authority of this Jesus Christ and the way in which he wants to administer his authority on the earth is through his church. And the way the church administers that authority on the, on the earth is allowing that authority to shape her and speak to her. And so one by one in our homes, in isolation with just our families, that's the task that he's going to be on about. So really what I'm wanting to do today, my encouragement to you is to reframe what could be really disorientating right now. And by that I mean confusing. And I want to reframe it to go that this time of disorientation is all about reorientation. Because where the world would go, your doing will give you your being. The Lord flips it around and he reorientates it and he goes, no, no, your being, the fact you are loved, that you are significant, that you belong, that you have identity. And you can't give yourself an identity, by the way. It is given to you by the one who knows you and the one who chose you and the one who fashioned you together. That it's that being that is then going to shape what you do. And unless what we do comes out of that foundation, then we're all just puff and smoke and a flash in the pan all over again. And what he's saying to you is that you are already my child and that is what he's wanting to minister to you. And to us collectively as the church, he is saying that the next season that he's preparing us for, and please hear me, when I say church, I'm not talking about this. No, no, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about the priesthood of all believers. I'm talking about every disciple who has chosen to follow Christ and has got a heart that is after him. And I'm talking about the collective worldwide ecclesia that are called out of this world to live the truth against the lies. And the next season of the church, because of what's at stake, it's going to be our doing is going to come out of our being because we need a new message and we need a new authority. And so when you hear that, the irony is you're going to, oh, no, now I need to do more prayer and I'm not doing enough prayer and I need to spend more time with Jesus and I'm not spending more time with Jesus and I need to be feeding my neighbours more. I'm not doing that. And so we've got to carve out more time. And how am I going to do that when I've got four kids in homeschool? Whatever your narrative is. But that goes to show how endemic this lie is that you even think that you have to do it. The essence and the simplicity of the gospel that Paul is getting his Corinthians to come back to is that you can't do it. And this whole work is going to be him. So he's creating the circumstances, he's creating the environment for that work to happen. Aaron talked about um, the return of the prodigal son. And we spent a whole term looking at that in the formation cohort. I happen to have the book here, big plug. And we spent a whole term um, studying this picture. And this picture is Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. People often call it The Return of the Lost Sons. It was the last painting that he painted before he died. And it's actually a biographical story of his own journey. And he happens to have his face in that of the father, the younger son and the older brother. And we spent a term looking at this. And as we were looking at it, we realised so many, many, many things. But the one that I want to bring your attention to now is that when you look at this painting and you look at this picture and you look at the younger brother who is on his knees lost, posited in contrast to the elder brother who's got it all together, got his crutches to hold on to, you see a, a brother in humility who's come to the end of himself and you see the tender, loving hands of a father, and you'll notice one hand is masculine and one hand is feminine. 
It's actually quite powerful. But those hands are on the younger brother's wound. The world's lie will say, you've got to have it all together, you've got to present a front, you've got to look great, you've got to do great, you've got to be in the inside out, back to front nature of our God's kingdom. The door to his love is your wound. We can't make this happen. And I'll be the first person to say, read the Bible more, sure. Worship more, sure. Watch your new one, sure. Do all of that because that is good. Don't get me wrong. But it's important I say here we can't do it. And I'm going to posit that there is something or some things that are coming up at the moment that you either didn't know existed but they're getting airplay, or you did know existed and they're not letting you ignore them. And I'm going to propose that a good father who can be trusted is bringing those things up for a reason because he's wanting to enter that wound to heal it, to show you his love. What is your wound? I don't know. I know mine. I don't know yours. Henry Nguyen would say this, what is your pain? It is the experience of not receiving what you most need. It is a place of emptiness where you feel sharply the absence of the love you most desire. Wherever that is for you, whatever that is, whatever has come up live of its own volition, not by your own tinkering and conjuring up, the Father's going after it. And that is the place in which he wants to minister to. The second thing, in a reality where we can't make this happen, is that God must do everything. In the story of the prodigal son, one of the things that's hit me is that it's the father who runs to both sons. He runs to meet the obvious prodigal, who obviously got it wrong. But he also runs to the one that was so caught up in their religion, their belief systems and their duty that they missed out on the party. And he runs to the older brother he says, come in, I want you in too. But the older brother ends up rejecting his father, ends up rejecting his brother, and at the core of his heart is actually caught up in his own self-rejection. But the father runs to both. And so, yes, please read the Bible, and yes, please watch Renew, and please be praying. These are just lifetime principles to be integrating in. But he's going to run to you. And at a time when you're not necessarily looking for it, He's going to answer your lifelong prayer to have that compulsion you can't control or that wound that you've looked at too many times. And he's going to enter it in this season that he's portioning for the church right now if we so posture ourselves towards it. And he is going to show you and tell you in a way I can't tell you. And no information or good books or theology will tell you. You are loved. You are accepted. Don't do anything. You may later do a lot. But for now, just accept the fact you are accepted. Do not strive. Do not wrestle. Just be. Nguyen goes on to say, you have to begin to trust that your experience of emptiness is not the final experience, that beyond it is a place where you are being held in When you go through your own tailor-made journey of what this is, and when I've gone through mine and I've shared pockets semi-recently, 
You get to discover a Jesus that is not a belief system or the answer. You get to discover a Jesus who is the prize. That for all our works, all our effort, all our ideas, all our control, the very thing we're trying to achieve is actually him and communion with him. And the reason he insists so much on going after that now is that he doesn't want what's to come next to come out of fear or wounding. The stakes are too high for where we're headed as a church, for what he's got for the earth. He wants the foundation to be him because only his spiritual authority can cut through the darkness. There is one thing we can do, and Jesus says this at the end of his letter to Ephesians. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Where the wound is the door, repentance is the key. We can't escape it. We need a reorientation, a change of heart, a change of mind that means we abandon the false things and run to the only true thing that has always been true and has always been the only one we have. We just didn't have the eyes to see it. But heed the warning here. Jesus is not backwards in coming forwards. If you don't do this, I will remove your lampstand from its place. What what does he mean by that? Because they're confronting words. He means there's two ways of doing church or being Christian. One is to do the right things and it might look great from the world's standards, but it misses the point. It won't have authority. It won't penetrate the dark places with light or replace the lies with truth, but it might look good. Or the other way is to be marked by the fullness of his presence, his authority, his love, his truth, where he's quelled fear, quelled lies, quelled insecurity. And from there, that spiritual authority goes into the world. There is a sifting happening in our church at the moment. And for those of you who are like, this wound is too strong, why is this happening? Because he wants you part of his next move that he has got for us as a church. Trust the process. Trust him. He is a good, good father and his spirit is a wonderful, wonderful counsellor. I want to end with a story of a discovery I have had during COVID. I have been living where I live for seven years, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven stars. And I've discovered the most beautiful river just down the road from my house. I've never seen it before. It is lush. It is beautiful. There are kookaburras. There are beautiful gum trees. It is misty. I just want to be there. My soul wants to be there. I'm like, why has it taken me seven years to discover this? No one else can believe me. Like, it's always been there. The reason I discovered it was I reorientated myself. One day I got out of my house and instead of turning right, like I have for seven years, I turned And in turning left, I found a whole new land and a whole new abundance and a whole new beauty. I had to cross the main road. There was a barrier. There was something to get through. But in doing it, the rewards pay dividends and I'm there daily. That is good for my soul. This repentance is you choosing to turn left instead of right. This is an intentional change of heart and mind. This repentance is the piece where Peter would say in Acts 3, Repent then 
and turn to God so that your sins may be washed away and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And so Jesus, we sit before you as your church, not as a service or a volunteer organisation, but as a group of people that you have called upon and called out of the world, as a group of people that you're intentionally wanting to do something in, in this hour, we acknowledge that this is critical. And so Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you tenderly and carefully be with each person, particularly those who have an acute wounding that has come up? Would you give us wisdom not to tinker with that or make it something that it doesn't need to be? Would you speak to what it is you're raising? Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to go there, to not avoid it, to not distract from it, but to allow you to speak to the lies that were tailor-made in that wounding, tailor-made from an enemy who is scared of who we could be who fears it and has had an assault against us. And spirit of truth, would you come? Speak your love, your belovedness, your acceptance. And Jesus, we do, we repent of where without meaning to. We have put things before you. Thank you in your grace that you're moving the pieces around. And this great work that you have begun, may you accomplish it. And may you renew this land. In the power of your name. Amen.